There was uh, shorter forms of the talk done for life groups with a study guide and all the rest of it. And uh, a lot of people said, well, that was really good. That was, that was fantastic. And, and in, in some ways, I thought it was fantastic as well because I enjoy doing that. I, I enjoy the, the writing, the video production, everything. So we decided that what we would do is do that again to kick off this year, but not do Romans again because that would be silly, wouldn't it? What we're going to do is we're going to look at Hebrews. Um, Hebrews is one of those books everybody says, oh, it's fantastic, but actually doesn't really get it. They don't really get into it. Um, and I actually think it's one of the most powerful uh, letters or books, however you want to say, in the Bible. And uh, in the book of Hebrews, what I've discovered is there's a massive, massive revelation about how we relate to God. And that revelation, if we can get hold of it, will change a lot of things about the, the way we do things. It'll change our prayer life. It'll change our expectations of God. It'll unravel a lot of the knots that the enemy ties us into. And it'll remove a lot of the barriers that are stopping us getting healed, set free, delivered and life changed. One of the things that Cheryl and I have discovered in our walk with God, and, and you know, it's, it's over many years. We, we used to like, you know, when, when we were struggling to get answers to prayer or struggling to see breakthrough, and, and we were sat in the car one day, and Cheryl, Cheryl I, just, I just slumped in my driver's seat, and I went, oh. And Cheryl went, oh. And she goes, why does it have to be so hard? And then this little voice went off in my head and it said, what if it's not hard? What if it's just too simple? The book of Hebrews will show you that it's simple. We have a simple gospel and it's the complications that we had to it and church people had to it that stop it working. So what you're going to have to do in this, this series is unlearn a few things. And get rid of your prejudices, get rid of your ways of thinking, and unlearn a few things. And then that'll allow the Holy Spirit to teach our heart a few things. So, unlike the way I did Romans, I, there will be the book chapters and all the rest of it, so if, you, if you're not on our mailing list, you need to get on it or you won't get the book chapter. You'll, if, you, if you're not, you'll see a little black card on a seat near you, you just need to fill it in. Uh, stick it in the offing buckets, which are, I don't know where they are. Somebody's run off with the money. Uh, so <laughs> stick it in the offing buckets at the end, wherever they got to, and then we'll put you on the mailing list and you'll, you'll get it. Um, now, unlike Romans, um, in order for us to... The, partly the way w the, the book of Hebrews is, is perhaps not as easy to read is that it talks a lot about how... Uh, what we have now differs from what Hebrew culture has. It, that's why it's called the Book of Hebrews. It was written to Hebrew believers. Um, there's a lot of discussion about who actually wrote it. Um, I, for all my, I could go into all the reasons, but some people think Barnabas wrote it. Some people thought Priscilla wrote it. Some people thought Apollos wrote it. I personally am of the camp that Paul wrote it. I think he just forgot to put his name on the top like he did with his other letters because it's, it's so much the way he thinks, the way his heart is and, the, and, the th and in line with the things that God has shown him. 
So, but to get this, what we're going to do, if, so you, if you bear with me, uh, we're going to start in the middle and work out. Because that's, well, yeah, oh, exciting. We're going to start in the middle and work out. Because um, generally, a lot of p- things that people know about Hebrews is chapter 11, faith, you know, all about the, the great men of faith, the whole of faith, and we get to the end of chapter 11, and that's Hebrews done. That's not the core of Hebrews. That's like an afterthought illustration of what he's been talking about. So we need to start in the middle. So... Um, the best way for me to explain this, and, and I've called this series Dealt With. So say that for me, Dealt With. So by the end of this series, you're going to believe a lot of things are dealt with and, all, and, and that they're yours, whereas before you thought you had to go to God to persuade him to give you them. And uh, I used to have the, this um, secretary at, at work um, called Fiona. And, you know, there are scurrilous rumours that perhaps that my desk is not the best organised of places. Um, or, or even my mind is not necessarily the best organised of places. And, and Fiona, who was my PA when, when I was at, um, at Deloitte, um, she, she was always attempting to solve the conundrum of Mark. And... Uh, her, her best attempt, the one that, that really revolutioned my life, was when she turned up one morning with a box with all the bubble wrap on, opened it up, and out of it came three plastic trays. You wouldn't think that anybody could be so excited about three plastic trays as Fiona was. And she put them on my desk, and she put three labels on, and she said, let this be something that you go with, Matt. In, out, and dealt with. Because she said this, she said, I was reading this thing and I thought this was just you, Mark. And she said, I was reading this survey on the internet and what it was saying is that the biggest waste of time anybody has in, in their life, particularly if they're involved in an administration job, is doing this. And she said, I guarantee you, if you track the number of fingerprints on the same piece of paper that we pick up and put down and pick up and put down and pick up and put down, you'll see how much time we're wasting. And, and she said, the key is to pick it up once, deal with it, and put it in the dealt with drawer and forget about it. And that's so important because a lot of people don't realize and don't know that God has a dealt with drawer. Stuff that he's dealt with is finished and he's filed. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 8, uh, verse 6. Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Say better covenant. Better covenant. Say better promises. There's a theme develop, isn't it? What we have is better than what people had before Jesus. So we don't have to live like people did before Jesus. We don't relate to God on that basis. God doesn't change between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but the way he relates to us changes because we have a better covenant on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. 
Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is quoting the Old Testament, where God was prophesying that he would do what he's, the, the writer is saying is now done. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's the covenant of the law, you know, what Moses was given. So it's not like that covenant. Say this, it's not like the law. It's different. It's different. What we have is very different to what Israel had in the Old Testament. Not con uh, uh, Because they did not continue my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. We discovered when we did Romans that we, we, we qualify. We were grafted into the house of Israel because of the sacrifice of Christ. So when we believe, we're grafted into Israel. So this is talking to us. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. None of them will teach his neighbor, and none his brother say, Know the Lord, for everyone will know me. Know who I am. Know what I think. Know the way my heart is. From the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Say that, I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he's made the first, the law, obsolete. Say obsolete. Okay, I'm getting you warmed up, you see. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, what I want you to know first of all is this, that this series, and basically what we're about in faith life, if, you, if this is your first morning, one of the big things that we've seen God do is unstick Christians who are stuck in their walk with God, who've seen no change in their life, no, no hopeful breakthroughs, year in, year out, Christianity, uh, following God, has just been hard work and for very little change, very little movement. And this, what, what you're going to hear over the next few weeks, I guarantee you will unstick you if you listen to it and if you do it. It won't unstick you if you just listen to it. You've got to do it. You've got to believe it. Yeah. Because the new covenant works by faith. So therefore, you've got to believe it, not just know it. Yeah. And a lot of the, the, our experience over the years has been that believers get stuck because they've lost the simple understanding of how God works in the life of a believer in Jesus. And, the, and they don't have the freedom that they should have because they don't know things have been finished and consigned to God's dealt with draw. And therefore, they still relate to God on the basis of trying to get him to do things he's already done, instead of believing the things and receiving that which is already theirs. Big difference between the new and the old covenant. And because of that, what you see is, is, is believers who keep on doing the same thing, going through the same motions, praying the same prayers, week after week, month after month, year after year, 
and getting the same results, which is very little. And do you know what? When you keep on doing the same things year after year and getting the same results every time, if you carry on doing them, expecting a different result, that's the definition of insanity. So we have a lot of insane Christians. We have a lot of crazy Christians who just carry on doing the same thing they've always done year after year and expecting it to produce something different than it's produced. And we need to, to keep our hearts soft so we can see perhaps we need to do something different instead of being insane. Amen? Amen. Amen. You think, am I insane? Am I insane? No. Guys, there's only me insane in this place. <laughs> right. And that's what, that was the problem with Israel in the Old Testament. They just went through all these repeat patterns. Um, basically, what they, 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 they tried to observe what God had told them to do. And um, after trying pretty hard for a while, they would mess up. And then when they messed up, they'd go through this whole rigmarole and offer sacrifices and, and like wail and cry out and, you know, bloody bulls, goats, all that sort of stuff. And, and, and they do all that. And um, by that, they, they get a temporary relief from the fact that they kept messing up. They, they, they would believe that their relationship with God was put back on a good footing. The trouble with that was that it didn't do anything permanent. It only lasted a little while till they messed up again, and then they had to go through the whole rigmarole again. And uh, they were stuck, in it, and you see it, right, you know... The, have you, when you read the story of Israel, they're always going through this pattern, aren't they? Messing up, saying sorry, messing up, saying sorry, messing up, saying sorry. And it, it was like their life was same old, same old, same old, same old, all the time, going right back round all the existing circle. And you know, the truth is that a lot of Christians live like that. And you might be one of them. You might be sat there going, well, you know, that, that's kind of, I, I see that's kind of the pattern I've got stuck in. I, I mess up, I try, try and sort it. I mess up, I try and sort it. Same old, same old, same old. Now, that's a really good indicator, that if that's you, that you're relating to God the way the Old Testament Israelites related to God under the Old Covenant. Because that's what it produced in them. That's a really good indicator. And... Um, one of the issues with um, that old covenant is that their way of solving their day-to-day -day messes was to be sin conscious, to focus on their sin, to focus on what they were doing wrong, go through all the religious practices, do the sacrifices, and hope that that made them acceptable to God. And then they try harder, and then they mess up, and they go through it all again. And, and the whole... Old Covenant was geared up to make people aware of how bad they were. Just let me read this. Better Covenant with better promises. I will remember their sins no more. We have something really, really different. And so we can't afford to behave and think like those old covenant believers. And, you know, one of the things that I guess really frustrates me is that for the most part, if you ask somebody what do they recognize about Christians, you know, people outside the church, and you say, well, 
What, what, do you, what do you recognize about Christians? They would recognize you, or the bulk of Christians, behaving like old covenant believers. Not only are they conscious of what a mess they are and what sins they make, but we want to tell everybody else what a mess they are and how bad they are and how, how evil they are and they're going to burn. So somehow we, we managed to take the new covenant and present it to a lost and dying world as an old covenant. Which basically the old covenant says this, you clean yourself up, you try harder, you become a Christian, and if you keep doing it, and you keep working at it, and you keep trying hard, and you come to church every week, and you're faithful, and you go through all these religious practices, and you swing incense, and you get circum... Uh, what's the word? Not circumcised. Uh, what do they do when you... Confirmed! Confirmed! That's it! Confirmed! If you get confirmed, and you get baptised, and you're a good Christian, then maybe one day, when you get there, God will judge you, and they'll let you into heaven. That's an, the old covenant. That's not the better covenant with the better promises. So if you've been exposed to that brand of religion, which I have to say is common, then this is going to set you free if you'll take it on. Remember, you've got to know it, and then you've got to do it. You're going to have to unlearn some things about the way you relate to God. Because... You know, the world outside isn't stupid. And we've got ourselves a pretty bad reputation that is nothing like a new covenant reputation. Yeah. It's an old covenant reputation. And they aren't falling for it. They don't want to become old covenant Jews. But they find Jesus attractive. So maybe if we present a new covenant, the way Jesus now uh, relates is because of what he's done, we'd have a different result. But to do that, we need to stop actually thinking that's how we should relate to God. Are, are, are you getting this? Yeah. Okay, because basically the way this season is going to work is that this morning is going to lay the ground rule and then the next X weeks, we're going to just expand from there. So there's a lot of like really clear technical principles this morning. All right? Does that make sense? Go with me to Hebrews 10 verse 1 and 2. I told you I was starting in the middle. We're going to really look at 8, 9 and 10. Um, for the law, that's the old covenant, the thing that Moses had, the, the do's and don'ts, the, all the rules, the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach God perfect. For then they would have ceased to offer the sacrifices. They could have stopped doing it if it made you perfect. For the worshippers, once purified, would have what? Had no more consciousness of sin. So we see there's actually a problem that came up through the Old Covenant that it couldn't actually solve the problem of who you were. It didn't change you. It just told you how bad you were. Anybody been in preachers where they just tell you how bad you are. I have. Spent years in preachers where they just told me how bad I was. It's not that I'm good. But we need somebody to tell us how good Jesus is and that we don't have to live like that anymore because he's given us the ability and life to change. And you see, 
The manifestation of that, the, how we know that we're walking under the old covenant is sin consciousness. How do you then know if you're walking under the new covenant? Because the focus of your, what you're thinking about and what your heart is and where it's set isn't on how miserable you are, it's on how great he is. The, the opposite of sin consciousness is not, I can go off and sin and do what I like. That's not the opposite of sin consciousness. That's stupidity 101. Just say stupidity 101. I just want to register that up front. And you know, a lot of people say, well, these people are teaching you that, that, that God, you, you can just go off and do what you like and it doesn't matter. Firstly, I know virtually no one that's teaching that. I know a lot of people are accused of teaching that, but they're not. But more to the point, if you are teaching that, you're stupid. Because that's not what the Bible says. But what it says is you can't solve that by rules and thinking about your sin and dwelling on your sin all the time. The way you solve it is to stop being sin conscious, the opposite of which is being Christ conscious. Where he fills your vision, where he fills your thoughts, where you're so in love with him, you don't think about, I want to do that. You're so far, you get further and further away from that sinful lifestyle and more and more in love with God. The opposite to sin is love in love with God, not keeping a rule. Because yeah. all the rules could ever do is tell you how bad you were. Are you getting this? Mm. Right, good. Let's crack on from there. So when it says that Jesus was given a better ministry, he's the mediator of the new covenant, that means he's, he's there uh, as representative of us all before God. And he was given this, this new ministry. What that, what that is, is it's different to religion. You know, when, when people say uh, religion on, you know, on passport forms and all that sort of stuff, I have a real problem with that question because I don't belong to a religion. I'm in love with the saviour. And he didn't like religion either. <laughs> so I, I'm sometimes tempted to take other. And, that, you know, when, it, when you haven't got off, when it's not on the list. But, you know, I, I don't want to get my passport sent back and charge another 70 quid. So I, I, I conform, <laughs> you know, for the sake of expediency. But Jesus isn't about religion. What, what we have is something that gets described as more excellent better, more powerful, because that's what it is. It's more excellent, it's better, it's more powerful than any religion on this planet, including what the church has made of Christianity when we try to make it a religion. We don't have a religion, we have a life. And we have a lifestyle and we are part of a family called the family of God. We have a family. Now, going back to those original verses we read, I want you to, to see three things. Firstly, this new, new lifestyle or, or new way of relating to God doesn't incorporate the old. It's not a mix that adds on to what they had in the Old Testament. You cannot mix grace and law. Grace and law mixed together is a toxic combination. Grace and law mixed together is what keeps Christian stuck 
fruitless and without power. And so this Hebrews clearly states that what we now have made the law obsolete. What does anybody want to tell me what obsolete means? Pardon? No, no longer relevant. Finished with, done with, of no value. You know, we when Paul will tell you this, you know, is there any lawyers in here? Okay, you're going to get upset by this series, Nikki. <laughs> but obsolete means you wrote it off. It no longer existed on your account. Secondly, what we have is unchangeable. It doesn't go up and down with circumstances. It doesn't go up and down with feelings. And it doesn't go up and down with whether we've been particularly holy on any particular day or not. Now, some, some people might go, well, I'm not really sure about that. Well, it's all right, just bear with me. I'm not going to explain it. Paul's going to explain it. And I'll, I'll just read what he said. But it doesn't go up and down with your holiness or your effort or how much you want to please God. It just doesn't. You'll see that in, in, in a minute. And the big, big value of that is because it doesn't go up and down, because it doesn't change, because it's not based on you, you can anchor your life to it when everything else is shaking. Because it doesn't change. It doesn't change with the most horrific day or the brightest day. It doesn't change with the most messed up day or the most holy day. It doesn't change and that means you can anchor to it. If it changed, you couldn't anchor to it. It would make, the, the, it would make Jesus dependent on how you got out of bed in the morning. Trust me, when I look in the mirror in the morning, I'm not thinking this is a great covenant and my hair looks brilliant. <laughs> I'm thinking, man, I could do with a shower and let's hope for the best, you know. <laughs> now, the, the point is this, that the old way of relating to God that he's talking about does what religion does. It tidies up your life on the outside without changing anything on the inside. In fact, Often what it does is worse than that. It tidies up your life on the outside. And when you see others admiring your tidiness on the outside, it makes you worse inside because you get full of pride and full of religion and full of, like, you know, like, I, I, there's nobody here like this, but I'm sure you've all come across um, Christians who, they always make you feel rubbish compared to them. You know, they, they, they're like, well... You're trying hard, I can see that. But if you, if you just saw the way I lived, then it would be different. No, I don't want to live the way you live. You're full of pride. Because if you make me feel like that, I'm seeing your pride instead of Jesus' love. And he's not talking down to me like that. He's down here right next to me and he's lifting me up. Amen? Amen? Right, here's where we get into to law. So um, one of the things that I did, at, uh, so this is English law, not, not Bible law, the same principles. One of the things that we did, uh, or I did as my career, involved me sitting in rooms 
for days on end, sometimes not going on for two or three days, eating lots of pizza. So teenage boys or 20-year-old boys in your 20s, you're thinking, this is a great job. They eat loads of pizza and drinking lots of coffee. I mean, what could be better? But what, what was a real downer in amongst the pizza and the coffee was that I would be analysing contracts from lawyers that were that thick on big corporate transactions. Because one of the things I did was I structured transactions uh, for management buyouts, takeovers, mergers, demergers, all that sort of stuff. And, and you get these contracts, and, and I'm sure you all know that, that lawyers really don't have the succinctness of the blessed race of accountancy. And, and the thing about lawyers is this, that they, 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 they like a lot of words because they like to cover everything off. And sometimes you look at it, it's a bit like reading Paul in Hebrews. You, you really think, guys, I really wish he'd learnt about commas and full stops and that sort of thing. But... These contracts, they would have all these terms, they would have all these uh, provisions, they'd have schedules to provisions, they'd have subschedules to provisions, they'd have definitions of subschedules of provisions, and, and they'd have terms, they'd have conditions, and then, just in case she hadn't covered everything off, tacked on the back of it was an even bigger document called Warries and Warranties and Indemnities that listed anything from sort of you guarantee that in the last six years you haven't stubbed your left toenail and, and it prejudiced the business through to, you know, you guarantee you own everything. And, and there'd be all these, and if you owned it, you had to, if, you, if you fibbed, you basically had to pay loads of money back or compensate. And there'd be these massive contracts with all these terms, conditions, principles, prices to be paid. That's a contract, yeah? yeah. Uh, they're really good contracts. Now, what's really interesting is the word covenant means contract. That's what we're dealing with. So if you, if you can't relate to my, uh, basically, description of, you know, what an exciting life lawyers have, you, you could look at it this way. How many of you have bought a house or taken out a lease on a house or whatever in, in your life so far? Yeah? A lot of us. If you haven't, you probably know how it works in that you buy a house with a contract. And under that contract, there'd be lots of terms that the buyer has to fulfill. You've got to come up with the money, but there's also things that the seller has to do. He's got to guarantee he owns it, make sure nobody's going to build an airfield on your, on your back garden, all those sort of things. But there's lots of lists of conditions and terms and, you know, is the wardrobe fixed to the wall? Isn't it fixed to the wall? Who owns it? All those sort of stuff. And then there's things that if you, you know, if you don't come up with the money or you don't complete, there's penalties. And then you pay the money, so there's a price to be paid. Yeah, there's a price to be paid under the contract. And what happens is that when you pay that price and you fulfill all the conditions, that contract's completed, isn't it? And you get to move in the house. Again, I'll repeat, covenant means contract. That's what we have here, a contract. That's when he says the old covenant, that's what it was like. There was terms and conditions. And the reason for that, and it's one of these where I can't explain, that God has chosen to relate to us on the basis of covenant. Now, some people, and they do, say, well, why did he do that? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I, I'm not even going to waffle on that one. I have not a clue. But he's God. 
And so that's how he decided he wanted to relate to mankind, on the basis of covenant or contract. So God is described by theologians as a covenant-making God. And these contracts that God has with us, the way he relates to us, um, they're not negoti negotiable. You know, some contracts are negotiated, these aren't. God said, that's the way it works. These are the terms, these are conditions, this is the price to be paid, and this is the penalties if you don't do it. Same as a house buying contract, same as one of those corporate contracts. So all through the Bible, we see a series of covenants or contracts that God has with man, which uh, regulate the way he relates to us. And the thing about those contracts, the same as our contracts, is that once they're enforced, they are legally binding. You know, some people go, well, why can't God just do what he wants? Surely if God was sovereign, he would sort out, he would stop so-and-so jumping off that high building and killing themselves. Well, no, God has given us a contract and he has decided that's the way things work. It's a bit like saying, well, why can't God stop somebody jumping off that high building there because they might kill themselves? Well, he could. He could suspend the law of gravity, in which case we're all going to float up from here and smack our head against the ceiling and we're going to die. You see, there's, there's laws or principles in effect with the way things relate. And that's how God set it up, that we relate to him by contract. And those contracts are legally binding. And as long as those contracts are in force, we're bound by them. We have to relate in that way. Are you, are you still with me? Yeah. Now, this is where we can get a bit like, okay, I don't, I don't get that God that we see in the Old Testament, particularly towards the end when everybody gets killed and taken off into captivity and all that sort of stuff. And, and then we throw into that, and I'm going to throw it in at the moment, is the only thing God has ever wanted is people who love him and people he can relate to, and the people who are his. his. They've got his heart, and he's got theirs. That's all God wants. So when we read the word, we have to come at it from the fact that he's a covenant-making God, but his goal is relationship. Now, the old covenant operates like an unfulfilled contract. You know, all those terms, all those conditions, all those prices paid. And, and basically, it operates like this. If you keep all the conditions, if you keep all the terms, and you pay all the price, you can have some good things. But if you break the terms, you don't keep the conditions, you fail on subsection 3.7 of schedule 6, amended to the terms of the conditions, and you fail that one, you get punished or you have to pay a penalty. So in the Old Testament, that's the contract was live. And that's the way it worked, that you, you, how can I put it? It had terms to fulfill to receive God's blessing. It had a system and sa of observance and sacrifice to deal with the fact that you failed to keep the terms. And it had a price to be paid to get the blessings. And if you didn't pay the price or you messed up, you got curses or consequences or penalties. 
That's the way the old covenant worked. And basically that produced a, a whole bunch of people who sought to please God based on their own holiness, their own religious observance, their own trying harder, their own do better, and their own basically slavishly trying to obey every aspect of religion and sacrifice and form that they could. And it, it also produced a people who were always pleading with God to do something for them because they couldn't do it and they knew they'd messed up. It also produced a people who were absolutely useless at anything when it came to walking in faith because all they could think about all the time was how bad they were. Now, here's the problem. Without knowing it, a lot of us live with that same sort of mentality. We live in a relationship with God where we think, if I do good, if I do more of this, if I... If I work at it, if I can clean myself up, if I can make myself better, if I could be a better Christian, then I'd see more of God's blessing in my life. Now, if I could pray hard, if I pleaded more, if I cried out more, if I shouted louder when I was praying, if I prayed longer, if I read my Bible more, if I read it more deeply, if I more understood more Greek, if I did this, if I was kind to small furry animals, if I, you know, all these things, God would bless me more. And we get in this terrible version of Christianity where we think everything depends on how good we are and how much effort we're putting in. And that robs us of our ability to enter into the fullness of life that God has for us. I don't know if you realize this, but the new covenant doesn't operate like that at all. So we've got a better covenant with better promises. Now, in the time that's left of me, let me tell you how that works. By the way, the truth is that life under religion is really hard work. <laughs> and let me give you another truth. Life under religion, you're always going to fail. You're never going to be good enough. Because however good you are, you'll still mess up at other things. And the last thing you need is somebody at the front or praying for you who's just telling you how bad you are and making you sin conscious. You need somebody to point you to a saviour who can help you and stand with you and pull you up and raise you up and who says, I love you. The thing about a contract is it's two-sided. The thing about covenant, therefore, is that it's two-sided. The old covenant had two sides to it. It had God's side. If you do this, I'll bless you with this. If you do that, I'll, you'll be cursed with this. Two sides to the contract. God and man. And if man kept the terms of the contract, he got good. If he failed to keep the terms of the contract, he got bad. So under the old contract... Um, we've got these two sides. Now, if you go to 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and 8, just a quick diversion. because I, I do want to kind of get through this. Are you still with me, by the way? Is this simple? Yeah? Okay, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 and 8. 
By the way, all the other preachers will be shorter, but if I don't get to this, you won't understand the other preachers. 2 Corinthians 3, 7, 8. If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, what's that talking about? It's talking about the commandments when Moses came down and wrote it on stones. Specifically, it's talking about the Ten Commandments here. If the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel couldn't look steadily at the face of Moses because the glory of his countenance, which was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? So what we have is more glorious than what Moses brought down the mountain, which is a bunch of rules written on stones. What we have is something more glorious than the Ten Commandments. What we have is more glorious than law. What we have is more glorious than a contract which says, if you do good, you get good, but if you do bad, you get bad. That contract was two-sided. Now, that contract had terms, rules, penalties to be uh, uh, suffered and prices to be paid in it in order to get from God what, what you needed or what, what, what you could get. Now, if that's how you see your relationship with God, I'm going to challenge you now to shift it because you are not under that contract. Because with any two-sided contract, if all the terms, all the conditions, all the penalties are paid and all the prices paid and all the terms are fulfilled, that contract is dealt with. Yeah. Dealt with. Dealt with. And that shifts the whole way we relate to God. It shifts the whole way we pray. It shifts the whole way we approach our faith. It shifts the whole way that, that our relationship with God works. Now, the reason it's dealt with is that the contract was two-sided. God and man. And God comes down empties himself and becomes man, Jesus. God keeps his side of the contract. Jesus, the man, keeps that side of the contract. The contract between God and man is fulfilled and paid for at the cross. There is no more price to be paid. Let me ask you a question, particularly the older members of the congregation. Were you there at the cross? <laughs> Some of you are like doubting that, like, honestly, anybody here 2,000 and a bit years old? None of us were at the cross, were we? So can we affect that event? Can you do anything to add to that? I'm kind of hoping Doctor Who's in, not in the building because can you do anything to change that? No. You cannot go back in time and change the fact that Jesus fulfilled the contract. That tells me something really simple. None of it depends on you. Not one iota depends on you. You weren't there. And if it's a fulfilled and completed contract, where is it? God's dealt with draw. Where do you think the key is? 
Jesus has got it, hasn't he? And he ain't giving it up ever because it's his. He owns it. You can do nothing to change what has been done. So now we go, so what is ours? Well, if all the punishment is taken, all the price is paid, all the terms are fulfilled, all the conditions are met, everyone and indemnity is dealt with, and it's signed with blood at the bottom, what is left? The benefit, the blessing, the life, the freedom, and I will know them, and I will remember their sins no more. Not because you're perfect, but because you can't change what was done 2,000 years ago. So don't try and relate to God like that. Let me just read through some verses, just so you can see Jesus fulfilled the contract. You know, there's that really odd verse, isn't it? We're in the, in, today we're in the business of explaining Difficult passages. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Do you not get what that means now? He fulfilled the law. He lived, he was born under the law to redeem those under the law by fulfilling the law. God does not change a covenant. He never takes back what he said. He never contradicts himself. So the only way that he could get us out from that whole system of religion, of fail, 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 you're not good enough, you're not good enough, was to fulfill it and make it complete and stick it in his dealt with drawer. And you can do nothing to change that. You have only one choice left. Do I believe it or don't I? Isn't that interesting? Because that's how the new covenant works. You have been saved by grace. God's dealt with draw is called grace. What can you do about it? Faith. It's a gift. The only thing you can do with what I'm telling you this morning is believe it or not. Because you can't change it. Here we see. Okay, so Galatians 4.4. 4. Jesus, we see, becomes fully God. This is what I've just explained to you. But, you know, some people, like me, like to see it all in the Word. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So if you were under the law and you've now been redeemed or paid for or bought, where are you? Not under the law. Come on, keep up with me. Lawyer got that one. She's thinking, I'm not under the law anymore because that's what it said. And then the second thing is this. Jesus came under the law and then he kept it in its entirety. Do not think I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill it. Perform it. Do it. If he's performed it, what do you not have to do? Before me. Okay. Number three, all the conditions were fulfilled. Romans 10.4. For Christ is what? The end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What is Christ? The end of the law for righteousness. Who does it apply to? Everyone who believes. 
So what can you do? Believe it or not, it's down to you. You take this by faith or not. Colossians 1.14, he paid the contract price. So he paid for all the blessings and he paid the penalty of all the curses. Where do we see that? In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That word redemption is paid for or bought back or paid the full price to take ownership of. And then we come to, um, oh, I forgot the, the reference, I can't see it on. Next one, Romans 6, 11, that's it. Now, this is the difference between what we have and what they didn't have under the old covenant. We are not the same person as we be were before we first believed. Under the old covenant, all they could do was go through the system, the mess, the sacrifice, the sin consciousness, and they stayed miserable, horrible sinners. Because they couldn't do anything about it. People could not change. Part of the problem is, you know, there's so many people in the church who are teaching the body of Christ that you are what you are and you can't change. Did you know that there's one of, well, the major denomination in the UK is lobbying parliament to introduce law to stop certain forms of ministry on the basis that it's not possible for anybody to change? That is a serious flaw in your theology and your Bible believing. The whole point of the new covenant is anybody and everybody can change because you can be born again, you can be a new creation, you can be adopted into a new family and you can be given the Holy Spirit who is one with your spirit so that you are a different person. And so you can live differently. That says, likewise, reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. When you believe, you are placed in Christ. Literally. You might not see it, but it's true. So now, when God looks at you, what does he see? Christ. Why is that? Because you're inside him. He can't see you. When he looks at you, he sees Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness. Not yours. You have a work in progress, but he sees Christ's righteousness. But he changes you. He puts you in Christ. So how do we finish all this? Now, here's my tough one that I'm going to finish with for you this week. All right? You're going to have to think through the implications of this. I, I, I'm going to obviously teach some more because I've got a lot to say on this one. Think about how this changes your relationship to God, what I'm about to say. Think about how it changes your prayer life. Think about how it changes the way you read the word. Jesus came under the law, fulfilled the law, kept the terms, kept the com conditions, paid the price, paid the penalties, and then placed you in him, so you've got what he's got. What have you got? 
Colossians chapter 1. Sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yes and amen to the glory of God through us. What have you got? Whatever you need, the answer is yes and amen. Whatever God's promise, the answer is yes and amen. How much of that depends on you? So what's all the pleading, whining, twining, pushing through, crying out, trying to clean up your act so God will answer your prayers about then? If none of it depends on you. What does depend on you is will you believe him? Will you take him at his word? Or do you still want to try and do it? This is the point. Guys, if you still want to try and do it, I can't stop you. If you still want to try and twist God's arm up his back to give him what he's already said is yours, I can't stop you. If you still want to do all the religious stuff, I can't stop you. I'm not even going to attempt to stop you. But I'm going to preach the gospel because it's the power of God for men unto salvation. And the gospel said in him, all God's promises are yes and amen, and I'm going to have them. So when there's a body needs healing, we're going to have it because it's a yes and amen. When there's provision that we need, we're going to have it because it's a yes and amen. When we need people to be delivered, we're going to have it because it's a yes and amen. When we need change in our life, we're going to have it because it's a yes and amen. Because God has said that Christ paid for it. So don't you start paying for it. Because he's not taking your check. It's coming back. It's bouncing back. So don't keep sending me. You get the same answer. It costs you money every time your check bounces. In this case, it costs you heartache. Let's stand. I'm done.